share his work, his word, his spirit, and his life that is in us and is doing a mighty work in us. And he's given it to us so that we could share it with others. It's not just baptism, brothers and sisters. Every week should be a baptism and Lord's Day celebration. This is why we gather. This is who has brought us together. And this is who keeps us together. And this is who keeps us moving forward. Regardless of the circumstances or the losses. And Matthew addresses this very clearly as we come to our text for this morning. Matthew two, thirteen through 18. Could I have my first slide, please? He puts things together as we deal with Jesus and Joseph and Mary, their flight to Egypt. He shows us what it is really all about, why we do what we do. And here's sort of our big truth for the day to summarize Matthew 2, 13 through 15. It's in this passage... In these God-breathed words that God warns us, on the one hand, what a great joy and what a great privilege it is to walk with Christ, to worship Him, just like the Magi did. It's a worship that demands everything of us. But at the same time, it is a worship that is both costly and it's dangerous at the same time. It's a worship that is both costly and dangerous. How often do we think of our Christian faith, brothers and sisters, as something that is costly and dangerous? Something that makes us hesitate. Even in our place of work, to say that we're a believer. Even to share with friends. Costly and dangerous. And yet, as we think about those who have been baptized in places like China or the Middle East, or many nations around our world where becoming baptized and making a public statement of faith that Christ belongs to me and I belong to Christ, I am His, comes with a death warrant. Well, brothers and sisters, this is nothing new. And God graciously shows us from Jesus' birth onwards, this is the way it has always been. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. And we're going to backtrack just a little bit. We'll read 7 through 15, but our focus this morning will be on Matthew 2, 13 through 15. Verse 7, Then Herod summoned the wise men, or the magi, secretly, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and they worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. 
For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. This is the word of the Lord. Years ago, when I started my first job, I had friends who, one in particular, had moved across country. And I had been invited by my ex-classmate and her husband to come and visit them in their new home. And when I went to visit them, they shared with me why they had chosen to live where they lived. And why they had chosen to purchase the home that they had purchased. And why they had each chosen to take the jobs that they had chosen to take. And the father and the husband pulled me aside and he said to me, and I really didn't completely understand this at the time because I was a young single guy. He said, Mark, he said, these are our greatest treasures. And he was pointing to his four children. And then he proceeded to explain, this is why we have chosen to live in the part of the country where we live, why we've purchased the home that we are in, why I have taken the job. He was a helicopter pilot and had chosen no longer to fly and had chosen to work at a port station, which was a little bit safer doing inspections. His wife had chosen to work part-time rather than full-time, all of these different things. He said, this is the reason why. He said, these children are our greatest treasure. Could I have my next slide, please? And it's a question that I want to ask each one of us. What is your greatest treasure? What do you value and what do you desire the most? Because brothers and sisters, in some ways, you don't even have to tell anybody. We can just look at your life and the choices you make and see what it is that is most important for you. The moves that you make, the decisions, the choices. At the end of the day, they are all based upon what your greatest treasure, what you value most. What you care about. And in Matthew 2, 13 through 15, God speaking through an angel, he reminds Joseph of a truth we all often forget in the busyness of life. That those who possess Christ carry a treasure of infinite value. And it's because Joseph and Mary, and because their lives are united with Christ, it's for this very reason that their lives are in imminent danger. And it is because of this that Joseph and Mary need the help of God and His Word. Not once, not just after the birth of Jesus, but they need God's help and the help of His Word every step of the way. This brings us to our first point this morning. And our first point is we need the ongoing help of God and His Word to walk with Christ. We need the ongoing help of God and His Word to walk with Christ. There's a dangerous lie that pervades American Christianity. Once we know Jesus, once we've accepted Him into our heart, once we are a Christian, we are good to go. 
And it sort of continues. Once we know God's Word, we're good to go. Once we know biblical counseling, we're good to go. Once we've taken the premarital class, once we're married, we're good to go. Well, new husbands, let me ask you. Once you said, I do, were you good to go? Did you have it all done? Easy peasy, lemon squeezy, everything's clear sailing. No longer need the Lord, no longer need shepherding, no longer need his help. But brothers and sisters, we frequently do that. And quite frankly, I I frequently hear that from many people. I've got it covered. I'm good to go. I've experienced this before. I know this. We know our theology really well. We've got this covered. We have this under wraps. As if somehow the finite mind of a fallen man has got everything figured out. And when you think about that, just think about it for a minute, about the hubris and the pride that makes that statement. Brothers and sisters, Christianity is never a one and done. God created us to depend and need Him every step of the way. That's what we were created for. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, not just on Sundays or part of the time. We need Him every step of the way. And the sweet thing about our God is He loves us and He desires to help us every step of the way. He's not like many fathers where there's this conditional love. Now that doesn't mean that God approves of everything that we do. Unconditional love is you can do whatever you want and I'm okay with it. What we're talking about is the steadfast love of the Father who is able and desires to walk with us every step of the journey. And according to Matthew's gospel, as we come back and consider very specifically Joseph, if anyone had earned the right to say, I'm good to go, I've got this, it's Joseph. When we go back to Matthew 119, Joseph is introduced by God's word as a just and righteous man. In the scriptures, a just and righteous man means someone who not only knows the law, And the law of Moses, but someone who, according to the law of Moses, is right with God. He's the best of the best. He's proven not only to know God's word, he's also proven to observe every aspect of the law. How many of us can say we qualify? By Matthew 2 standards, Joseph has had an angel of the Lord explain the gospel to him. How many of us have had an angel of the Lord come and explain the details of the gospel to us? And by faith, Joseph has become the legal guardian of the Messiah. He has witnessed the birth of the Messiah. He has witnessed the worship of the shepherds and the worship of the Magi. And he has heard their reports. By revelation, by faith, by experience, by knowing Jesus. If anyone was good to go, it would have been Joseph sit for the rest of his life and share with others everything he had heard and seen. And yet in verse 13, Matthew shows us, it's because of all this, it's precisely because he has experienced, he has seen, he has witnessed firsthand the glory of the Messiah. 
It's because of this that his life is in danger. And it is because of this, his proximity to Christ, that he now needs God's help and his word more than ever. Brothers and sisters, you look at the giants of the faith. You look at Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox. You go back to the early history of the church, and then you go back to the scriptures. Men who walk with God, the more they walk with God, they don't need God less, they need Him more. And Martin Luther used to talk about that, about his prayer life. The greater the challenges, and the greater the battles, and the greater the fights, the busier he was, the more prayer he needed. And how opposite is that with us? We're moving, we're busy, we've got this, that, and the other things. They fell by the wayside. It's really the reverse, brothers and sisters. But what also is the reverse, brothers and sisters, is the joy and the delight and the wonder that also infinitely increases as we walk through the valley with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in verse 13, Matthew writes, Now, when they had departed, and he's referring to the Magi, he says what? Behold. Behold. And we've heard this before. And what Matthew is showing us, that it is because of Jesus, and because of the danger, but also because of the proximity, because Jesus is there. Here's the sweet thing. God is far from done with working in Joseph's life. And if God is far from done with working in Joseph's life, it means Joseph has a few uncomfortable journeys ahead of him. And we see that God intervenes again through the appearance of an angel of the Lord in a dream. And the Greek word for angel is angelos. It just means messenger. A messenger of the Lord. Literally, a messenger of the Lord. And it means that anything that this angel says is coming directly from the mouth of God. God has spoken it, He has decreed it, and He has sent this supernatural messenger from His presence to Joseph to make an important point and to speak to him the very words of God. And what are God's words to Joseph? Well, just like before, there are a series of very urgent and very inconvenient commands for Joseph. Urgent and inconvenient. Joseph is to take care of this child, this child of God, and he's to do so with his life. He is to rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, or escape to Egypt, and remain there. For how long? doesn't say, until I tell you. Indefinitely. Whose timetable? It isn't Joseph's. It's God's. And why must Joseph do all of this? Because by faith, he has already obeyed God. He has taken Mary as his wife, even though he has not consummated the marriage with them. He's taken this child as his own. He's given this child the name that the angel of the Lord has commanded him to give. He's in this. He's to do this because his life is tied to Jesus. And the only way out is for him to step away. And what is God's explanation for all of this to Joseph? For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. To erase, to remove. 
And it's with these words that God gives Joseph. Not an explanation of everything, not all the details. If you look at this, the explanation is very, very sparse. But what he does give Joseph is enough for Joseph's salvation. Sufficient. And there are four truths that God gives here in these words that we need to help us walk with Christ. First, God is omniscient, not us. God alone is omniscient. God alone knows and understands everything. He alone knows the hearts of men. He alone knows what men are going to do at any given moment or time. He directs the heart of kings. He also alone knows knows the end from the beginning. We don't know these things. We barely understand the past and we don't know the future. Brothers and sisters, when challenges come our way, we need to consider that seriously. Who knows what's going on? It's certainly not you and I. God alone is omniscient. Number two, not everyone who says they want to help us and not everyone who says they want to worship Jesus really wants to help and really wants to worship Jesus. Everybody gets so disappointed when they see people stumble and fall. Big names, big celebrities. It's a shock. Devastates us. But what it does, brothers and sisters, is how, shows how much confidence we place in the accomplishments of men and how we long to have heroes who are men rather than esteeming and cherishing and value the only one who's ever done it right, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the good news of the gospel is, you all have him. We don't need to look for heroes on the basketball court or in books. The good news of the gospel is we we have him already. But do we esteem? It shows in the extent in which we are shaken... When those in the church stumble and fall. And yet we come back to the scriptures over and over again. And God shows us just like Herod earlier saying, I too want to come and worship him. Not everyone who says they want to help or worship Jesus truly wants to help and worship Jesus. Third, as long as our lives are united by faith with Christ. As long as our lives are united by faith with Christ, what we celebrated last week in baptism, Christ's enemies are going to be our enemies. Jesus says in John 15, right after he says, abide in me and I in you, gives that command. He goes on in the second half of the chapter and says, if they hated me, what? They're going to hate you. Breaking news. You stand for Christ, the line is going to be divided. You belong to the Lord, and there is incredible blessing and delight and love and joy. You're part of the family of God, but guess what? Not everybody's excited about that, including your flesh. And who is it who really wants to be an enemy of God? Well, it's everyone who desires to destroy the king. Everyone who desires to destroy the king, why? So that they can keep their own crowns. That's Herod, right? He's got to get rid of Jesus so that he can hang on to his counterfeit crown. 
And brothers and sisters, that's as true in the pulpit as it is in the pew. It's as true in our marriages and our careers. What are the crowns that we long to hang on to? And therefore, we erase Jesus from that sphere or realm. Had the privilege this week of spending time with another pastor who's traveled in different parts of the country and what he shared with me. What's one of the biggest battles in ministering in the local church? He said, personal holiness. Personal holiness. Especially here in Silicon Valley. It's okay to come to church. It's okay to sing the Psalms. But let's not let Jesus get into my personal life. The decisions I make. What I do. Where I go. Let's draw that line and make sure that we're compartmentalized. This is my work life. Nobody gets to talk about that. But this is my church life. And this is how we do. Well, what we do, brothers and sisters, is we erase Jesus. Because we want to hang on to a counterfeit crown, a kingdom of our own. And the tragedy with that, brothers and sisters, is we forego the help and goodness of the Lord that he so longs to give. A king who is able to save and who is able to help. Fourth and final truth that we get by God's explanation to Joseph. Yesterday's experience and yesterday's knowledge and yesterday's righteousness cannot save me today or tomorrow. Yesterday's experience, yesterday's knowledge, yesterday's righteousness cannot save me today or tomorrow. I can't tell you how many times people come and say, I can help. Why can you help? Because I've done A, B, C, D, and E. I've run a children's ministry. I've been to seminary. I'm ACBC certified. I can help. But brothers and sisters, the help we need is Jesus. And everything that you've accomplished in the past can't save you today or tomorrow. We are all one step away from betraying Jesus three times in the courtyard of the high priest. But we also have a Savior who is able to restore us and do beyond anything we could hope or imagine. Why is that? Because the help he gives comes from above and not below. If Joseph wants to live and walk with Christ, and if he wants to continue this journey with Jesus, there's only one way he can do it. He needs to trust and obey God rather than trusting and obeying his feelings, his experience, and himself. And that, brothers and sisters, is a choice that each one of us has to make every day that we wake up. This brings us to our second point for this morning. Faith that saves, trusts, and loves God more than ourselves. Faith that saves, trusts, and loves God more than ourselves. There's a lot of talk today, not just in the church, about faith and love. You hear about it everywhere. You hear it on the basketball court. You hear it in the schools. You hear it everywhere. You know, nobody's really shy about talking about faith and love. But the mantra of our time is believe in yourself and love yourself. 
And as much as we put a distance between ourselves and that, and we understand, okay, that the focus of this is all about us, a universe and a world that revolves around us, the truth is, brothers and sisters, functionally we struggle with that because we are that generation. We've been raised in it. And even as we think of our era of technology and all the technologies that we have and the blessings that we have, from live streaming, which is a blessing, to social media, all of the different things that we have, it's all really geared towards loving ourselves and believing in ourselves. We get to pick and choose what works for us. All the algorithms are geared towards what works for us. And we're able to engage what we think is right or best. And I just want to make you mindful that the further we go down this path, the more we feed our flesh, where it's about me, it's about me, it's about me, it's about me, it's my desires. And then, brothers and sisters, we struggle to turn things off and we wonder why. Or we get caught in certain situations where our buttons get pressed and we have a hard time walking away. Well, in benign ways that we think we've been, all we've been doing is loving ourselves and believing in ourselves. In Scripture... There's only one faith that saves. And that's not faith in me. It's not faith in my knowledge. It's not faith in my experience. It's not faith in my understanding. It's not faith in John MacArthur or John Piper. The only faith that saves is the faith that loves and trusts God more than anything else in the world. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on what? Our own understanding. It's that admission that, guess what? My understanding is limited. And it isn't going to save me. Do we need understanding? Yes. Do we need knowledge? Yes. Do we need experience? Yes. We need those things. But brothers and sisters, without God, it is all vanity. When God is the basis of your experience and your knowledge. When God is the basis of your efforts. And those are expressions of faith. Trust in Him, not trust in ourselves. That our confidence is the God who's working in and through us as parents, as husbands, and as wives. Then those things are redeemed. And they serve as a blessing. Well, here in verse 14 and 15, Joseph shows us what a faith that loves and trusts in God more than anything else looks like. What does it look like? It looks like the faith of Abraham and Moses and Joshua and King David and the Apostle Paul. It looks like the faith that led Christ to the cross. It's the same faith because it's the faith that God gives. And it's a humble trust and dependence on God's word. That leads to following and finishing all that God commands. What's the proof of a faith in God that is greater than a faith in ourselves? It's a faith that follows and finishes all that God commands regardless of the cost. Doesn't matter what it costs. Doesn't matter how difficult it is. How common is it, brothers and sisters, when our pride gets offended 
or things get difficult, or we set up the prayer meeting and nobody shows up, that we become discouraged and saddened and say, I'm going to throw in the towel. And yet when we do that, where is our hope? Well, it's worth noticing God's command to Joseph in verse 13. So we look at the command that he gave. It is not detailed. There are many gaps. How is Joseph going to pay for this journey? How is he going to get there? What are they going to eat along the way? How long is it going to take? How long am I going to be there? God doesn't answer any of those things. God's commands to Joseph in verse 13, they are not detailed. They are certainly not easy. And they are not practical. This would not fly in most church committees. Egypt is 150 miles away at the bare minimum. It's a week's journey with a mother who at most is two years at the most. Probably more like a year or 16 months after having had this child with an infant. A child who is under two years of age. That journey is hard enough in a minivan, let alone at night on those roads. And it's worth noting what Joseph does not say. He doesn't say, I don't understand. He doesn't say, I will if. He doesn't say, it's hard, can I only do part of it? Without excuses, without questions, without delay. Joseph immediately follows and finishes all that God commands. Matthew, very carefully as he writes this, shows blow by blow that Joseph is particular to do everything that he is commanded. And this is consistently Joseph's pattern. God's word in verse 13 says, rise. Verse 14 says, and he rose. God's word says in verse 13, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Verse 14 says, and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. New Testament Greek scholar Wallace says, the evangelist uses night to emphasize immediate obedience. Immediate obedience. Like, he got up that night and told Mary to get packing and they hit the road. Brothers and sisters, the road to Egypt is not a pretty place. I've traveled it in a bus at night. I've had an Israeli bus driver in the middle of the night point to the Jordanian border and say, okay, there you go, get out. And I and my friends refused to get out because all there was was pitch black dirt and rock. I'm staying on this thing till we get to the bus terminal. It's scary. Verse 13 says... Remain there until I tell you. And as we come to verse 15, Matthew tells us he remained there until King Herod's death. And as we get further in the passage, we read that an angel of the Lord appears again to him in a dream, letting him know King Herod's dead. You can go back. Brothers and sisters, this is what true faith in God and his word looks like. It follows and finishes all God's command. Without delay and without excuses, regardless of the cost. Brothers and sisters, how we respond to the word of the Lord lets the Lord know what's in our hearts. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out what is most esteemed, what is treasured. We just have to say, okay, 
are there a million excuses here? Or are there a million I don't understand? It's hard. Or I've got this covered. Or is it a heart that simply says, okay, what do I do? How do I do it? And the surprising thing, as time goes on, you will see that it's not the most learned. It's not the people necessarily who know the most scriptures like the chief priests and scribes. Over time, you'll see that the Lord will surprise you. And sometimes it's the simplest of people. When they're confronted with sin or they're told what they need to do, you're sleeping with your girlfriend, you need to move out. This is not pleasing to the Lord who you have just accepted. And you'll see the one give countless different reasons about how John Piper feels about these relationships and John MacArthur and all the different lines to squeeze. And you'll see others, sometimes even without a college education, saying, okay, where do I go? How do I do? Where am I going to sleep? I had one pastor who worked in Northern California where the marijuana industry is huge. And he told me how a man came in and said, I want to ask questions to you. Came in basically and he said, I said, what did you do? What do you do? He said, I shared the gospel with him. He wanted to be saved. He said, what do I need to do? And he said, I looked at this man and I saw he had $2,000. His boots were like $2,000. He had a hat, which was worth $1,000. I said to him first, what do you do? He said, I'm an electrician. He said, I said, there's no way you're an electrician. He said, I do all the light work for all the cannabis farms in the area. And this pastor confronted him and he said, look, If you want Jesus, if you want to be saved, there's going to be a change. You're going to have to give this past life up. You can't serve two masters. And he said when he said that, he took all the money out of his pockets and his coat pockets and started laying cash and everything he had on the table and said, let's go. And his wife threw him out Because she still wanted that lifestyle and the money. And he ended up sleeping in the church. Faith that highly esteems Christ as our only hope of salvation. Is a faith that is willing to finish and follow all of God's commands without hesitation, without delay. And I might add even more so with great joy. Why do men do these things? Jesus says in Luke 9.23, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It's to follow Christ. It's to be with Jesus. And those who do so... By God's grace, their eyes have been opened to appreciate that being with Christ is worth more than everything that this world has to offer. And Jesus in John 14, 15 tells his disciples, If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. It's very, very simple. Why? Because this is how Jesus loves the Father. He keeps the Father's commandments. So, brothers and sisters, our obedience to God's word, it speaks volumes about who we love, who we trust, who we follow. Are we following ourselves, our feelings, our desires, our ambitions? Or 
are we following and walking with Christ? And typically the great barrier to following Christ at the end of the day, once you peel back the excuses and the reasons, whether they come from a systematic theology textbook or wherever, the the barriers typically is how much we love and trust ourselves rather than God. And what's remarkable about Joseph's faith is though the personal cost is high, there's never any indication There's never any indication that Joseph fully understands God's plan. And it doesn't matter to Joseph. And it doesn't stop Joseph from obeying. Why? I'm going to give you five reasons why. First, God is worthy of our trust and love. God's worthy of our trust and love. And he's a lot more worthy of our trust and love than we're worthy of our trust and love. Second, God does not owe us an explanation. God does not owe us an explanation for why he does what he does. He doesn't have to fill in all the details. He doesn't have to help us understand everything perfectly. Three, God's gospel is far bigger than us. God's gospel is far bigger than us. God is doing things in your lives, brothers and sisters, that you don't begin to know or understand. I've told you this before. I worked in a medical practice. They used to send women to me to get abortions. I said, I won't do it. And they kept on sending, and I finally lost it. Not honoring to God, okay? I have to ask the Lord for forgiveness. They're like... The young lady there, I'm saying, look, I can't do this. I can't do this. This is not right. And then proceeded to ask her if she would consider carrying this child. Years later, when I leave the practice, she comes in and visits. You've heard this before. And she says, oh, you, you saved my baby. I said, how? Was I nice to you? I never know what Mark was like back then. And she said, no, I'll know. You actually you yelled at me. Very imperfect, okay? Very imperfect. And at the time, it's like, why do they dump all these things in this medical practice on me? Me, me, me. It's all about me. Failing to see that God has a far bigger plan than Mark Chen and what his morning in the office is like and how convenient and how easy it is. Praise God, he uses us. And why does he use us? Because he's a good and gracious father and because the gospel is his work, it's not ours. I look back and that say, I can't take any credit at all. I was a jerk. And yet, God was great and good. The gospel is far bigger than us or our understanding. Reason number four, God's word is sufficient to save us. God doesn't give you all the details, brothers and sisters. He doesn't spell out what the rest of your life is going to be like. But he does give you enough in love for what you need to get to the next step. And for Joseph, it was to get to Egypt. That's all Joseph needed to know. I need to be in Egypt. If this is where I need to be, that's where I'm going to go. No questions asked. Final, last, number five. Christ is worth it. Christ is worth it. Verse 15, and he rose. He took the child, his mother, by night... And departed to Egypt, and he remained there until the death of Herod. Joseph had to give up, from a human perspective, just about everything. His life, his family in Nazareth, his carpentry practice, moving from place to place like a vagrant. 
but Christ was worth it. And this brings us to our final point for this morning. Jesus is the holy and beloved Son of God. He is the greatest treasure of all. Jesus is the holy and beloved Son of God. He is the greatest treasure of all. Brothers and sisters, this is why Joseph did what he did, and it wasn't a big deal. This is what the angel of the Lord first explained to Joseph from the beginning in Matthew 1, 20 through 21. Joseph, son of David, have a look at it. Go back to Matthew 1, 20 through 21. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Why? For that which is conceived in her is from what? The Holy Spirit. This is God's work. There's no finger pointing, Mary, why did you do this? There's no blame shifting. It's like, look, God is the one who has brought me here. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And that name Jesus means Yahweh, the Lord is salvation. For he will save his people from their sins. Like we said last time, Biblical Counseling 101 What is the remedy for Joseph's fear, his anxiety, his lack of understanding? What saves him from a divorce? It's the gospel, brothers and sisters. It's God's plan. Very specifically, it's the Lord helping Joseph to understand and appreciate who and what we have in Christ. Brothers and sisters, that's why we gather every week. If Christ is in us, we gather together to encourage one another and to see what we can't see in our own lives, how Christ is working in that person. Sometimes we can't see it. And God brings all sorts of people who are different. Different journeys, different challenges, different paths. And He graciously allows us to see the treasure that He has put inside us. It's that reminder of the infinite treasure that we have in the Son of God becoming flesh and being with us, Emmanuel, God with us, that dispels our anxiety, our fears, our worries, and gives us the power to repent and turn from the things of this world. Why? Because He's worth more. I ask men who struggle with sin, make a choice. Who are you going to love more, your sin or Christ? And this is what Matthew points us to again in verse 15, after the fact, after Joseph's gone. And Joseph, I don't think, ever has any indication of this at all. He points us to God's plan of salvation that's decreed before the foundation of time, specifically written by his prophet Hosea. Hosea 11.1, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, many scholars suggest that Matthew is simply proof-texting here from the Old Testament. The proof-text is just to take a text that sort of suits your needs, and you say it and take it out of context because it makes you look good and it helps your argument. And so, many scholars look at this and they say, okay, Matthew, he, he's looking for something that says sun. He's looking for something that says Egypt. Get out your Septuagint concordance. Type in son and Egypt, and you come up with Hosea 11.1, put it in, edit it together, there we go, the church is clapping, hey, we're good. But I want you to look very carefully at what Matthew says in verse 15. This, referring to the flight to Egypt, was to fulfill, to bring to completion, 
what the Lord had spoken from the mouth of God. Divine, verbal, plenary inspiration. What the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Matthew's coming out and saying that there's a story that's begun in the Old Testament that is being completed here. And it's a story that begins before the foundation of time that God has spoken from His very mouth. And therefore, what we are seeing is a mighty work of God. In Exodus 4.22, God through Moses refers to Israel as my firstborn son. My firstborn son. And in scripture, a son is the testimony and gift of a father's love. A son is the testimony and gift of a father's life. A son is one who will go on and take the name of the father. A son is one who will represent the father. A son is one who belongs in an exclusive relationship with the father. It is a title that is about the authority, the privilege, and the responsibility that comes from a special relationship. Son is all about relationship, and it's a title that shows who you belong to and who you represent. That's done over and over and over and over again. That's why Matthew starts with the genealogy. And goes, Father, Son, Father, Son. And then breaks it and brings women in to show that God is using women as well. And He's using them in a special and unique way. Now the name Hosea. The book from which this is taken. That name Hosea is a variation of the name Joshua. Which is the Hebrew version of the name Jesus. They all mean Yahweh or the Lord is salvation. And what's the message? The message is, you all are going out there and you're looking for salvation everywhere and every place. And salvation is found in one place and one place alone. The God who loved you, the God who saved you, the God who brought you out of Egypt, and the God who made you his firstborn son. And these are the words that God speaks through Hosea to apostate Israel in 755 to 715 BC to call them to repent. And in Hosea, God reminds Israel, I saved you out of Egypt, I saved you out of slavery, you were slaves, and I made you my firstborn son. You belong to me. It's an expression of love. You belong to me. And I called you to be the bearer and representative of my life and my love and my salvation to the world. But, Hosea 11.2, you didn't want to be my son. You didn't want to love me. And you didn't want my love. You wanted to love yourself more. And you wanted to pursue the idols and the kings and the leadership of all the nations around. That's the way you wanted to go. You refuse to walk in my ways. You refuse to follow and finish my plan of salvation. So what does God do? Well, first he comes to Hosea and says, I'm going to ask you to marry a prostitute, an adulterous woman, an unfaithful woman, a harlot, a woman of harlotry. Hosea, go and marry a woman who is going to be unfaithful to you so that you can be a picture illustration of my love for Israel And how my steadfast love endures and you're going to pursue her and you're going to show she is wrong but I still love you. And the way of salvation is found in the steadfast love of God, not the love of the world. 
And what does God promise to do in Hosea? He promises in love to judge his people's sin. But then he himself will do in love what they cannot do for themselves. He's going to save his people from their sin. And how does he do that? Well, back in Matthew 2, verse 15, Matthew's gospel shows, and as you go throughout all of Matthew's gospel, Matthew is going to show us here in every step, he's going to show how Jesus goes back and he retraces the steps of apostate Israel and where they fail and where they disobey and where they abandon God. He loves, he obeys, And he finishes and follows everything that Israel refused to and everything, quite frankly, that you and I refuse to do. And we see here that what Jesus is doing is he's not replacing or editing the past. That's how we look at it. The church is a replacement for Israel. No, it's not. Brothers and sisters, what Jesus is doing here and what God is doing through Jesus is what he does in each one of our lives. He redeems our past. Those mistakes that have been made, those sins that we've made, those things that we grieve over, Christ redeems them, and then he uses them for his glory to complete his good news and testimony of salvation, of a God who makes all things new. And it's in this way Jesus shows Israel and the world what a true son of God is, one who perfectly loves One who perfectly trusts, one who perfectly follows and finishes completely all his father's commands, even if it costs him his life. Why does he do this? Because according to the word of God, this is who Jesus is. He alone is the perfect son of God. He alone is the beloved and holy eternal son of God. No one else can follow and finish completely. No one else is perfectly righteous. No one else can come and step into our shoes in the places we feel he's able to do it perfectly. And he does it, brothers and sisters, not for himself. He does it for us. That's what justification is about. That's why the gospel is such good news. There's nothing we can do, brothers and sisters, to add to what Jesus has done. He has done it perfectly. And there's nothing we can take away from it either. Brothers and sisters, on your best day, if Christ is with you, there's nothing you're adding to the good news of Jesus Christ. And on your worst day, yes, we need to repent, but there's nothing that you take away from him. Jesus, he's the eternal son of God who takes on flesh to save us from our sins so that sinners like us might become sons and daughters of God, and so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but we would live like him for God. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. What's remarkable, brothers and sisters, about this journey for Joseph and Mary, is as they, by faith, give up everything to obey God's word, their lives are united with Christ. They become part of the good news and the story of the good news. But brothers and sisters, they become like Christ. They become a family that no longer lives for themselves, but they live only for the infinite treasure that they carry with them 
their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it's through that that many will be saved and many will be blessed. They become people who understand that worshiping Christ is both costly and dangerous, but it is worth it. Why? Because Jesus is the greatest treasure of all. Brothers and sisters, what do you value and desire? Who and what are you living for? For those of you who come to church on a regular basis, is Christ your treasure seven days a week? For those of you who are struggling with sin, can you see that the greatest power to kill your sin is appreciating who Jesus is and the treasure you have? Church family, as we consider the future, do we need all the answers? Or can we say that Christ is enough and he's sufficient? Do you know this Jesus? Have you repented by faith? And do you trust in him more than you trust in yourselves? Brothers and sisters, think about our lives and the areas that we struggle with. Because the call from the Lord is that we would find our hope and joy in what God has already given Let me close with this. Many years ago, I was able to get Julia Ring to propose to her. I went to the jewelry store. There was a security guard in the front. It's interesting, isn't it, that jewelry stores keep security guards in the front and they never turn their security off. Well, I think it's because they understand what they have inside. And as I went and got the ring to pick up and to drive from Orange County up to Julie, the jeweler who was there was wanted to make a big show of it, and so he put this huge bag, red and gold, super bling, right? Put the thing in. And I felt so uncomfortable with it. So after I got it, basically, I put the box in my pocket and I folded up the bag because the last thing I wanted to do was to be walking through a shopping mall in a parking lot with this huge thing saying, rob me, right? I'm Chinese, what can I say? Okay, maybe if I was Korean, I'd be different, I don't know. But nonetheless... I think I was nervous and vigilant because I was aware that I was carrying something of great worth. But that didn't stop me from leaving the mall. And it didn't stop me from getting the ring. Why? Because it was special and I wanted to give it to someone I loved. And so it gave me every reason to figure out a way to keep moving and to carry that gift and to give it to the person I love. And I just want to say this to you, brothers and sisters. We of all people have every reason to be joyful and to have courage and to have strength and to rejoice in every circumstance because regardless of the danger, regardless of the cost, God has given you something of infinite worth. He's given you his son. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, Thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. You are a gift that we do not deserve. May we treasure you. May we cherish you. May we rejoice and celebrate in all things. And may we just trust you that in your goodness and grace, you'll get us to where we need to be. In your name we pray. Amen.